Yo, how are you doing, folks? Welcome to episode 23 of the Simple Life podcast. I am Simple Carter, and as always, I am joined by Maka. How are you on this fine evening, sir? Not too bad. You didn't fuck it up this time. I'm just joking. That, um, <laughs> it's normally me that fucks it up. So I'm actually doing really well. Um, <clears throat> yeah, just enjoying the fact that it's warmer and it's brighter. Back Indeed, you, it, is, guy. it is now officially spring. The clocks will be changing, I think, next weekend or <laughs> maybe after this recording goes out. I'm not quite sure on timescale right now. Um, we are joined today by a hell of a guest. He was actually the opening speaker for the Durham uh, City Cannabis Club Autumn Expo at Bourbon Hotel back in October 2019. Um, George Charlton, he is a qualified award-winning trainer, counselor and consultant offering addiction support, family therapy, mediation, drug and alcohol awareness and harm prevention training. Um, without further ado, I'll throw you over to George to introduce himself a little bit better. Hi, Simba. Um, hi, guys. Do you know what it is? I think my uh, website bio probably makes me sound a lot better than I actually am. But um, <laughs> like a real honour to be here with you lads as well today on your podcast. I'm a big fan. And uh, I, man, I'm, I'm pleased to spend an hour with you to see where we're getting away. Right, exactly. Exactly. Um, I've got quite a few sort of uh, questions for you. I'm aware that we're, we're only going to be recording sort of for an hour with yourself because of prior commitments and uh, technological issues that we have had for the past fault. half an hour while trying to prepare completely. for this. This is absolutely fucking panicking. Just going, it doesn't fucking work. <laughs> uh, but yeah, okay, let's get cracking. Yeah, we're on there. We're on there. Um, so I suppose the, the, the first question is sort of to lead you into telling, I suppose, the your story and your narrative and what it is and why you sort of do what you do. So it's how and why did you get involved in, in drug reform? Yeah, wow. Well, I think the thing I should say right on uh, up at the top is you two gentlemen absolutely need to cut me short, right? Because like I've got more pattern than a fortnight's rain, right? And when I start <laughs> talking, I never fucking shut up, you know what I mean? So like, how did I get into this? Well, my T-shirt says drug war veteran. And I guess that's what I am in some ways. I'm a I'm a veteran survivor of the of the drug war. Um, uh, I work for myself currently. I have done for probably the the last ten years. Um, but drugs. I, I'm an old bloke, you know. In many ways, I think compared to you lads, right? I was a. I grew up in South Tyneside. In I was born in 1973. Uh, I went to a, a good old Catholic school where they administered discipline by fucking brainy as hard as they could across your hands with leather straps, you know. Uh, I, I, um, I really struggled, you know, academically. Uh, I wasn't very good at school. I had big daft fucking national health glasses on, a bit like what I'm wearing now, except they're fashionable. Uh, I had a stupid fucking haircut, man. And my dad was always spitting in his hand and rubbing it across my hair and all that, right? And there was lots of love in my family and stuff like that. But I felt I felt like an oddball, man, right? I always used to always used to look at other people and think, uh, other kids and think, I don't feel the way that they looked, right? They looked to be kind of the way they would interact and get on with each other. It just looked really natural for them. And I think for me, I didn't uh, I didn't get that. I didn't. I didn't feel popular. 
I wasn't popular. You almost had these different classes in my school. You had like the SWATs and the academics, and I didn't fit into that class. Then you had the trendies and the dressers with our pod sandals on and all that, and I didn't fit into that group. Then you had kind of people who maybe struggled with sports and kind of were a little bit overweight and that. And even they were saying, you're going to fuck off, George. We don't even want you in our group. So I was kind of, I was kind of, I was kind of creating a social class all of my own, and I was the only fucking member. Do you know what I mean? But you know what? Joking aside, man, right? Like, School was really tough growing up, and I, and I kind of identify now that like I struggled with kind of low self esteem and low self worth, right? And I was a I was quite a sensitive kid, you know, and uh, and going to a school where they used to bray like that, right? For some boys, it was like a badge on I getting hit, right? But when I used to get hit by grown men who really went for it, you know, as well, they were trying to fucking hurt you. They did hurt my hands, but they hurt my mind more. Do you know what I mean? And I think that uh, long before I, I ever got involved in drugs, I was all I was fucking broken. Do you know what I mean? I was um, I was emotionally, physically, and sexually bankrupt and abused by the time I was fifteen. I think uh, <clears throat> my, uh, my introduction to uh, my introduction to, to cannabis uh, was was again like early on, probably fourteen or fifteen year old, going to a bloke's house called Bob. His surname shall remain nameless. Who lived in heaven, and it was fucking great, man. Going down to Bob's house now, he was much older than me, and that he kind of had dreads in his hair, uh, Afghan black, and all that was being sold. And and I remember having to join and kind of just fucking having the biggest white day of my life and all that, and, and kind of not really having a great deal of pleasure out of it, but kind of recognizing that I, I guess that. Even though I had a whitey, that cannabis did something for me. Do you know what I mean? It kind of absolutely sedated my racing brain, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it was no coincidence that, like, around that time in the, the late 80s, we were all chipping in to get a tenner deal and we're down Westmoreland Court Flats, having a couple of joints and that. And cannabis became, like, just a, a really big part of my life, you know, from the age of about 14 or 15, right the way through until, uh, when? Until I was about 28 or 29. Um I think as well, I was always I was always desperate to change the way that I was feeling as well, though. Do you know what I mean? It was kind of, maybe it's at an unconscious level, I think uh, I started to realise that kind of drugs could do for me what I couldn't do for myself. So kind of going to score more dope and uh, then kind of somebody says, well, do you want some acid? And I took some acid and it was a fucking nightmare. Everyone seemed to love it. I ended up hiding down the bushes in the time for 10 hours, maybe thinking, it's fucking stop. I'll never do it again. But then I always did it again, do you know what I mean? It was kind <laughs> of like, it was always always that thing. And then uh, I remember going along one night to get some trips and the kids said, I've got no trips, but I've got some whiz. And it was like, well, what's that? You know what I mean? It was kind of, and uh, I remember kind of getting a uh, tenner bag of speed and I took that Fucking arrived. I'm telling you, still picking me up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just got you there. You got sorry, just for a little bit there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So like the the amphetamine, right? When I took that, right, I fucking arrived. I'm telling you, right. It was like my shoulders went back. Like uh, my dancing got better. I could talk to the girls. Do you know what I mean? Like people weren't laughing at us anymore because we were taking the piss out of us. So we're kind of finding like. They were kind of finding as funny. Do you know what I mean? I was a bit of a fucking joker, a bit of a funny fucker. And all of the time that this is going on, I'm getting like positive regard. Do you know what I mean? Like unconditional positive regard from people, which was really different to how my my younger years had been. Uh, 
But what was happening was like when everyone would take a bit of ways, I'd take a bit of MDMA on a weekend and come Monday, they'd go to work. I'd be taking more fucking amphetamines. Do you know what I mean? And and and, and smoking more dope and and taking. I, I became kind of really irresponsible around my use in some ways. Um, I was doing a, a YDS, nineteen pound fifty a week. That was your wage. Do you know what I mean? And you you couldn't get much fucking dope off Bob, and you couldn't get much fucking whiz off the other fella for nineteen pound fifty. So I started getting involved in crime and that, and stealing from the places where I was working, and. Uh, it was one of them, man. I, I, I was, um, I always remember kind of my first involvement with the police was I'd been in somebody's van and uh, I'd, I'd been doing whatever drugs we'd been doing and um, I'd lost my wallet. I wasn't aware that I'd lost my wallet. The only time that I'd become aware that I'd lost my wallet was when a policeman knocked on my dad's door, right? Said, we found your son's wallet inside of a minibus. Um which has got no tax and test on it. Can we talk to him? And, uh, and my dad said, "Well, why do you need to talk?" He said, "Well, we found some drugs," and uh, and went inside a little little flappy bit of me wallet. There's a couple of joints worth in there, man. I'm telling you, it was like fucking out, right? And uh, and I was taken away in the car. They took us down to Keppel Street Police Station and, and interviewed us and all that, right? And I was still a relatively young guy, and I, and I was like. Like it was on top, man. It was really fucking difficult to kind of try and talk my way out of that. I got cautioned for it, and uh, and I kind—I think I learned a very quick lesson there, which is like when you've got drugs, you need to kind of get them hidden or get them used really, really quickly because you can't risk—you can't risk getting caught by the by the police. I mean, the long story short for me, lads, you know, was uh, the amphetamine ended up becoming a, a real problem for me. Uh, I was a daily user. I was using whiz in copious amounts, not sleeping suffering with psychosis and uh, and I ended up thinking I need to join the army fucking to to address my drug problem and I thought a really good thing to do to get away from drugs would be to take a load of fucking drugs with us. So I took a nine bar of hash down to Deep Cut Camberley, Surrey and I'd been in basic training for two weeks and uh, and I met this nugget from Middlesbrough. I always meet a nugget me or I don't know, they might think the same thing about me but I met this kid down there and I hadn't had anything in there for two two weeks, but I had this I had this nine bar in there hidden, and uh, we got talking about oh we saw the raves and go to the eclipse and all that and right and it's like start whispering I saw oh, you see that I used to smoke a bit of dope I said oh really yeah yeah I used to smoke a bit of dope as well and then before you know we were both skinning up forgetting that I'm in the fucking British Army do you know what I mean right, right? right. and uh, I I picked my bit of dope up he didn't pick his bit of dope up we're walking around the trees getting stoned in the army man you know i think they're more clever fuckers than that and uh when we come back somebody found the dope his little bit of dope on the floor it had been handed into the sergeants the military police had been phoned and before he knew where i was they found like a couple of bites out of a nine bar in my room and ended up uh, locked up court-martial not court-martial sorry locked up and put in front of the commanding officer and i got a uh, i got two and a half years in prison and then fucking really kicked out. <laughs> wow, Bizarre. I didn't know. Aye, aye. Two and a half years, and and then kind of came home, and uh, and you know what, man, the last year, the last ten years from me when I got home from the military, probably the age of twenty-one year old, it just amplified. You know, kind of, I'd, I'd been, I didn't know what I was supposed to be in my life. I think the one thing that I thought I, I was supposed to be was a soldier. I'd been in the army cadets. I used to play the bugle. I remember in Sundays and that. And uh, and I was fucking blown it, and I came back home to heaven, 
feeling a disgrace. And the only way that I knew to do was to to medicate that with different kinds of drugs. And it went from, uh, I'm not really a fan of the words recreational drug use. Do you know what I mean? It mm-hmm. was like more therapeutic for me, but it just went to the point where I was I was using for oblivion, where the the dancing and the going out wasn't happening anymore, and it was about isolation and dihydrocodeine and uh, fucking six to nine liters of white cider and fitting and fucking myself fucking open with razor blades because I fucking loathe myself. I fucking loathe myself. And you, you, your behaviour when you start going on like that, then you're back in the police car again, and you're in locked psychiatric units in the fucking bead wing, and you know people are stabbing you in the face and putting you in the boot of a car because you owe ten grand's worth of fucking debt. In my life, just was like, fuck, man. It was, was fucked, man. Do you know what I mean? I yeah. was absolutely fucked, you know. And and that wasn't like for me. It's kind of like part of us just felt there that I needed to kind of defend that it wasn't the drugs, you know. It was kind of like. Yeah. other people were using the drugs that I was using but it wasn't happening to them but I think for me that they had some principles and discipline around the way that they were using you know and there certainly wasn't a harm reduction message which was around like in the late 80s and 90s and stuff and uh, I don't know I tried uh, I'm going to shut me hole in a second but I tried to kill myself basically on a number of occasions right and this one time like my mum and dad were absolutely aware of what was going on at this point I'd, uh, I'd ended up moving back in with them they were living with a fucking maniac if I'm honest they were living with a, a guy that was out of his mind, um, out of his mind. And uh, my dad always tried, he said, I'm going to help you, George. I'm always going to be here for you. And uh, he planned to take my mum away. They were both elderly. He was going to take my mum down, uh, down to Uncle Jimmy's in, in Chesterfield and he was going to come back home and he was going to fix my drug problem. And uh, that was going to happen in a couple of weeks. He was going to take and I started... Uh, collecting dihydrocodeine and collecting warfarin and my plan was going to be that when he took her down there I was going to take uh, all these dihydrocodeine I was going to take a shitload of warfarin not because you got a buzz off them because of thin your blood and I was going to fucking hack into my wrists and uh, and that would be that and, uh, and he took my mum away and I did that and uh, when my dad was driving down he said to me mum I've got a bad feeling you know Rita Simpson doesn't feel fucking right and he turned the car around and Fuck. came home and found me Jesus. Um, bleeding out in the wet, bleeding out in the wet room, you know. And uh, to think that they fucking had to come back and say that was really bad, man. And uh, and I ended up straight from there detained under the Mental Health Act, uh, thirty days stay, and then straight into a residential rehabilitation centre in the year two thousand, Simba. And uh, I was there for a year. I wasn't drinking, wasn't using, but I was still fucking broke, you know, and that kind of became the start of my journey in many ways. A tough apprenticeship, <laughs> but I certainly served me time. <laughs> fucking hell. A tough apprenticeship is probably the most <laughs> under-fucking-whelming <laughs> description of that. <clears throat> my God. Wow. Um, wow. I need to breathe. I've got yeah, to go. Just to preface, I've got to... just to give you a bit of space there to just fucking digest this, right? <clears throat> I've heard george speak at the at the autumn event i sort of had an idea of what i was you know what what, what was expected when uh, in this episode and you've blown my mind again again like fucking hell that is that wow like i don't genuinely i don't know what to say it's it's actually it's it's mind bending wow Oh, but you know, it's like, 
it's one of them, isn't it? You know, like the, the, the tragic thing is, it's like fucking that story is not unique to me. Well, that story yeah. is unique to me because it's my story, but it, but it's certainly not unique to the people that, that, that I work with, you know, like I, I can honestly say, you know, like I'm, I'm sat here right now with fucking goosebumps, man, right? And like, yeah. and, and that for me is about like, it's about like second chances in some ways, you know what I mean? Or I had second chances, third chances, a hundred chances, you know what I mean? But I kind of, I kind of sit here today filled with gratitude for that experience. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. like without, without that, then I wouldn't be in the, in the position that I'm in now, you know, I, I, I didn't get qualifications from school. I couldn't wait to fucking be away from there. And, and in many ways in, in 2000 and 2001, I needed uh, I needed to fucking rebuild me life, you know. The rehab will basically say, "Well, you got another twelve weeks, and you're fucking out of here, innit?" And it was like, mm. "Fuck!" Like, what was I going to do? Go back to, go back to heaven where I lived, where kind of there was just nothing there for me, man. Nothing there but like fear, but equally anxiety, you know. Like, I, yeah. I owed, I owed, I owed people a lot of money and shit, you know. And they, and they, and it, and it was about then, about kind of. One guy says to me, he says, you know, you'll be all right, man, George. He says, you only have to do one thing. And I think, well, I can fucking do one thing. He says, well, you only have to change one thing as well. And I think, well, fucking anybody can do it. I said, what's that? He says, you need to change fucking everything. I was like, fucking hell. <laughs> and you know what, man? And it, it was mad. And I went and did a couple of bits of education, did a basic counselling course. I've never passed anything in my life. You know what I mean? And I, and I remember this woman, counselling course, 12 weeks long, I think. Everyone passes it. And they... I didn't even want to be a counsellor. I just knew, I, I didn't know how to be around people and interact and feel confident and safe without like drugs. And even when I was taking them, I wasn't feeling confident and safe in the end. Yeah. And, it, and she gave us this certificate and it said, this is to certify that George is a, has completed a basic counselling course. And I was fucking covered, man. He goosebumps. I thought, fucking hell. Like two things happened. First thing in my life, I never started and finished, right? But secondly, that them goosebumps, I thought, I was a bit like snorting fucking cocaine. Yeah. That feeling there, yeah. it kind of identified like being high on life. So I thought, right, fuck it, level two, then I did level three, level four, postgraduate diploma, degree, and then a fucking master's in the end. I thought, you know what? I'm as, I'm, as, I'm as hooked on education as I was on the fucking gear, so I need to kind of cut that shit out as well. <laughs> Although, do you? you? Know I don't know if you do. Hmm. That's what? an interesting mm. one. Yeah, I mean... Oh, I think... Go on. Um, yeah, sorry, yeah, I appreciate you jumping in there, Mark, because, yeah, it's, I, for a moment, they had that same feeling that, um, we met, obviously, at the Newcastle, uh, Labour Drug Policy Reform Group meeting, you were speaking yeah, on the, yeah. Pa- yeah, speaking on the panel with a few of the, a few of the guests, uh, Fiona Gilbertson, who we've had on the podcast previously, uh, Michael Fisher from Teesside Cannabis Club and a few others, and immediately afterwards, we, I approached you and, and obviously, uh, expressed that, in a lot to to a certain lesser degree, you 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 spoke of the narrative of my life. We share a great deal of commonality of our youth, and mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that's always drawn me to to your work. And since discovering sort of who you are, I think your message is is powerful, truly powerful, and I think your attitude mm-hmm. is 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 truly refreshing in amongst the drug reform movement because you are a person with lived experience that is you're, you're humbled, but you haven't let it destroy your humor. You haven't let it destroy your humanity. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? And I think that mm-hmm. is. That is something that I hope that people take from from hearing your story, and I uh, hope that they themselves can recognise parts of it and and feel a comfort akin to what you found in the in that we're not alone in this. You know what I mean? That we we all suffer, we all have mental health, and we're all on a spectrum of ever changing and fluctuating bullshit. 
and the way we deal with it is 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 individual but it's also part of like the collective psyche we we all have a, an innate desire to to I suppose have a, 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 a curiosity to explore our consciousness but as you say this desire to pacify pain and I think that's the one of the things when you were speaking of your trouble with amphetamine that was resonating in my brain was I got to the same situation I mean at one point I I got it down to being able to get an ounce of base for about 10, 15 quid and to be able to sell a gram for a tenner. So the margins were not just shit, but, but I still never had enough because I was, I was the same. I'd sleep every four or five days no. when the body literally like, I can't go to the toilet. I can't function. I can't quite think you have a micro naps and you're blacking out while walking down the street and shit. And then you kind of go, okay, and you get away from it at that point, you force a bit of nutrition and you go through the whole fucking cycle again. And what you said again, with your parents living with this, sort of a beast or monster a paraphrase i can't remember the exact words you said that resonated heavily with me because again I, I felt the same that i'd i've learned in later years uh through going through therapy and addressing a lot of my trauma and recognizing that my actions were not done entirely out of spite or out of conscious decision there were consequences yeah. of the the mental changes that you go through for such a protracted um, period when you take drugs for such a long time and you get this this bitterness to the world who are telling you that this is wrong and that's bad. And you're like, no, but when I do this, I feel great. All of your shit disappears. The hate yeah, of the world, yeah, the pain. I feel love in my heart. Yeah. I feel connected to the universe or whatever it may be that uh, others feel in that, in that situation. And I think the, the way you spoke at the expo, for example, and I think one of the things you said was, you know what? Drugs are fucking good. And I think it's, it's, it was such a, 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 again, a refreshing thing to hear from someone that's not kind of gone, the exact opposite. So I suppose one of the questions I did, I did want to ask you on this podcast was, how do you, what are your thoughts on and how do you sort of feel about forced sobriety recovery programs? Good question. I suppose for me, I'm, I'm kind well, I'm for me, people, for me, it is at the end of the day, right? But like, I don't know, man. Um, I am for whatever works, right? So I, I deliver um, I deliver uh, an evidence-based training program, which is called Craft Community Reinforcement and Family Training, right? And it kind of it comes from the premise that uh, possibly the best, the best one of the best resources that people who use drug, drugs in a way which impacts on them badly, right, is that we we empower their family members to offer help and support, right? And um, Family members generally spend more time with drug users than with anybody else. Drug treatment providers, I've got mates who've got like 90 or 100 people on their caseload. They're meant to see them every two or three weeks, which means the the, the, the quality time that you can give somebody who has an addiction issue is kind of like 20 minutes or 30 minutes if you're looking, right? So then the drug user then go away from go away from seeing the clinical worker and go home to a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife who's with the substance user for hours every day really wants to help them, but doesn't know how to help them. So what Kraft believes is that, well, let's make the fucking family member the practitioner. Let's teach the family member behavioral skill, a behavioral change model that's focused around your love has power. I fucking love it, man. Right, that line tomorrow, I'll be shouting about that tomorrow on the call with 20 practitioners tomorrow. And the idea that your love has power, I fucking love it, right? But what happens is that we, we've, we've created recovery-orientated models of care, right, where the, the, the definition of success is working towards abstinence, leaving treatment, and then not returning for 12 weeks, right? So an abstinence-based model is, it's okay, man, if that's what the person desires, right? But what we're seeing now is that with the best efforts of this country and this fucking government, 
again, we've got 4,393 deaths, right? Olympic as that came out a couple of months back. 15 people will die today of a drug-related death. 15 people die yesterday of a drug-related death. 15 people will die tomorrow of a drug-related death. Right. And, and there's many, many reasons why that's going to happen. But one of the reasons is that we can kind of really alienate people's pathways and routes into treatment because we're abstinent focused in our approach. Right. Rather than kind of having a more harm reductionist viewpoint, which says that, you know what, man, for many of us, the safest way to take drugs is not to take them. However, we know you're going to. So let's let's communicate and tell you how to do that safely. And I think that we've lost something in terms of drug and alcohol treatment support where, and this isn't this isn't having to go at, at treatment providers or the staff that work within them, you know, they do fucking absolutely fabulous work. But I think we've lost our voice around harm reduction in some ways and the ability where uh, by saying that, oh, we actually absolutely get kind of condoned drug use. So I feel for me, you know, Sim, uh, whatever works, man. If it's uh, if it's abstinence that a person wants, that's fine. Mm. If it's uh, moderation management, that's fine. If it's heroin-assisted treatment, that's absolutely fine. Do you know what I mean? But let's let's absolutely work with what people want. Yeah, we. Well, I think ultimately that that's the thing, isn't it? We have we have to meet use uh, server. You serve. God, God, I can't speak today. I don't know what the hell is wrong with my mouth. I apologize uh, to all our listeners and viewers. You're all right, man. You're all good, man. Um, the service users, we need to create services that the service users will use because exactly what you've said, the, that alienation, that the barriers to entry uh, based on the fact that, oh my God, the fear of I have to, this is my last, my last, my last batch, my last use, my last go, my last hit. And that narrative, you keep going, you perpetuate, and you go, just one more day, just one more day. And in that day, you lose an extra bit of hygiene management. You lose another relationship or connection. You lose another a rented property. You lose more of your, your confidence, your self-worth, and your desire because you're just chasing this idea, this narrative that is in some ways created and perpetuated by that recovery system. And again, I, I echo your your thoughts because the people the vast majority of people that work within that industry and sector are knowledgeable caring sympathetic individuals that just want to see good done in the world i think some are unfortunately misguided over moralizing but i think the vast majority as i've said are are trying to actually make the lives of consumers and their families better and, and lessen the harm on society but the other side of the conversation i suppose is still yeah. that the meta analysis i guess basically we term it down to 90 percent of all drug users do so sort of non-problematically so then is this a conversation that is happening in the recovery movement is there a thing of is it just all use equals abuse therefore we have to stop all use yeah yeah but i think it's different it's different horses for different courses isn't it you know so like for me when i when i went into a rehab i went into a, a I went into a 12-step abstinence-based program. Do you know what I mean? And 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 you won't hear me vilify the or demonize the, the 12 steps. You know, I owe my life to that to that rehab, man. You know, that I was uh, I was abstinent from from all drugs, including alcohol, for for seven years. I went into uh, mutual aid groups and support where people absolutely welcomed me with open arms. When for the last decade, everyone had been saying, "Fucking move away," you know, get away from us. Yeah. So there was kind of there was that that connection and fellowship which came mm. from kind of that model of 12-step recovery or uh, mutual aid like uh, that's what i needed in my life at that time you know like and, and i've got lots of friends who subscribe to to the 12 steps and you know it's it's a case of each to their own i think for me though like 
it was about like I was promised the bridge to normal living, you know, and kind of what, what was happening for me was it didn't feel that normal for me to be attending four and five meetings a, a week where I wasn't drinking or using alcohol, but I was spending a lot of time talking about alcohol and drugs. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, and, it, and and when it kind when it kind when when my education doing my masters at Durham kind of got me thinking that like was alcohol and drugs really the the issue for me? Well, yes, they were the way that I was consuming them. But when I when I had the opportunity of having personal therapy as well, I started to realize, you know, like those experiences that I had as a young man growing up, like being hit and, and suffering with like going through sexual abuse when I was a kid and stuff like that. You know, it's no coincidence that that I ended up doing that I ended up needing to escape to address my trauma, you know? Mm. And I think that, like, uh, I think whether whether it's about abs- whether you abstain from problematic drug use or, or drug use or not, you're still left with a void, you know? I think when uh, that that ACE study that was done, you know, reckons that if you if you suffer, like, four or more adverse childhood experiences, right, than, than uh, somebody who potentially has one, then you're 11 times more likely to end up in the prison system. You're 11 times more likely to use class A drugs. Yeah, you're 11 times more, li- sorry, seven times more likely to end up in violent crime. Do you know what I mean? It's like the writing's on the wall in many ways. So I think that, you know, man, um, for some people, abstinence is the only way, but then we're still left with the, where do you go for the treatment support for that other stuff? And I think that, um, I think that that's where we need a, a real joined up holistic approach, right? Because you get into that whole narrative, don't you, about like uh, mental health teams will go, oh, well, we can't work with them because he's too much up his head on the fucking drugs. We need to sort the drugs out before we'll see him. And then the other side of it is like kind of, yeah, too fucking batshit crazy for the fucking alcohol or drug services to work with you. And it's kind of like, you you know, man, it's like Mm -hmm. we need a holistic, we need a holistic response, I think. We definitely, we definitely do. had a thought process there but i'm i'm I'm, you know i have a penchant for fucking losing my train of thought so i'm trying to (laughs) throw a few words out there and hope that i would get it back but it just feels like yeah there's so many this is so many people being left behind or being driven should i say to a point of extremity right bang i cannot progress further than this or you know xyz will happen that is you know terminal say do you know that kind of way that's what i know that's a really poor generalization but it feels to me that you almost have to reach that tipping point or where where you do end up dropping everything because you've recognized that it's detrimental but the reality of the situation is that there is you know more than likely you're going to have you know progressive mental oscillation over time that just sort of that leads you to that point but you could you could have went like you know when you were saying oh one more day one more day or one more day i would argue that if there was an approach of you know more more sort of a harm reduction-esque approach that would allow people to reduce 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 over time in that regard you would you would you would give people more of an opportunity to seek the treatment at an earlier stage now that 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 isn't necessarily uh, you know a definite i'm not necess- i'm not saying that that you know that is what's going to happen but surely offering that to people is 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 the is the way forward it, it, it can't not be do you know that kind of way does that make sense yeah. but i think i i think absolutely man and i think i agree with 
Tim, I think the thing that I should say is that like, uh, I think that among drug and alcohol treatment providers nationally, there's areas of really great practice and there's areas which aren't so great. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think the one thing for me that we... That work that I'm doing with Danny Ahmed down at Foundations and kind of with We Are With You and other organisations like that is like, you know, the, the safest place for people to be is in treatment and support. Do you know what I mean? And getting people on optimum doses of the right medication is mm. definitely what is available in some places. You know, it's not a case of like that, that it's a race to the finish line and you come into drug treatment and we've got to get you off a methadone script or we've got to get you off a, a group of morphine script. I think maybe he's five or ten years ago there was maybe that kind of desire that we're going to get you in get you on 150 mil and then we're going to drop you 10 mil 10 mil 10 mil there was like there was kind of lots of people going fucking hell i feel like i'm coming down way too quick here and i don't think that that narrative is is kind of as it is anymore you know i think that kind of people i think people do generally get heard when they come into treatment and support in terms of the pharmacological intervention right i think in lots of cases around um, OST, for instance, opioid substitution therapy, then then that offer has kind of a really good offer, which is which gets made. For some places, we don't get them up to the optimal dose. Do you know what I mean? So it's a real struggle to get people. Let's give people what they need. Do you know what I mean? So like you've got the clinical guidelines for substance misuse management that would kind of tell you what an optimal dose is, and then it's really difficult sometimes for people to kind of get up there. But like. Like, why do we make it so difficult just generally for fucking people whose lives are fucking difficult anyway? Like, if you kind of think about, like, me and my story and the people who I see, I see people, like, in Middlesbrough who got no fucking legs, they're homeless, right? They've got no legs, they're homeless, they've got no teeth, their world's falling apart, their head's fucking smashed and dip. And it's almost as if society wants to make it more difficult yeah. for that person. And, and so, so it's not even about drug and alcohol treatment support services for me. It's kind of something's gone wrong with us as a fucking society where we feel as though like the most that the most vulnerable people in our communities are the people who we should demonize, vilify, stigmatize, and fucking shame. And I just mm-hmm. don't kind of well, I was gonna say I don't get it. I do get it actually. I know why that happens because the press and the media portray us as fucking villains. Yeah. And the right headlines like zombies on our street or junkies on hippie green you know and and they take photographs of i remember seeing a photograph it sticks with us man like round the back of um uh, uh one alleyway around the back of newcastle and there's a picture of a guy who's lying on the floor he's not asleep he, he's looks as though he's fucking just he's went over do you know what i mean his body's all contorted and that and then just in the distance around the corner there's a, a there's a, a a road sweeper you know, with these buggy things out of the push, right? Yeah. And you just see the road sweeper picking something up. And I'm thinking the fucking rubbish is getting more fucking attention there than that poor fucker lying down there. Like, is he alive? Is he breathing? Somebody's took the time to photograph that. Like, did you go and give that person a shake? Like, did you go and see if he's fucking breathing? Yeah. Why did why don't why don't we, why don't they matter? Because you know what? People look at me and go, oh, George, you know, we are masters and you've met fucking Joanna Lumley and you do all this work. Like, I matter now, but you fucker, you wouldn't have given us a light of day 10 years ago. You know, I, I just feel like, I don't know, man. You, no. you, you triggered me there. No, Sorry, you're right. No, no, you are, you are, you are entirely right. right. And George, you've always fucking mattered. Every life matters. I hate this bullshit moralizing coming from these pseudo Christians who are like, that life is the most precious thing as long as you conform to our worldview. It's this neoliberalistic fucking bullshit idea of going that you've made a bad decision. You've chosen to take these drugs and to have these mental health problems. It's your personal failure. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, man up and sort your shit out. 
It's a bullshit narrative that gets perpetuated consistently uh, yeah. and continually. And it's like you said before of you, you hate recreational as a term. Me too. I hate medicinal as well. You hit the nail on the head. Therapeutic. There is a reason we go back to take drugs. You then have a difficult experience from the external. Everyone's going, oh, my God, your girlfriend's left you. You're homeless and blah, blah, blah. Why are you still using? Why are you still whatever? And it's like, because unlike you fuckers out here, this thing helps my internal world. My heart stops aching. I stop hearing the beating of it through my ears. I can the vein in my forehead restricts and I can hear beyond the cacophonous sound of this screaming in my head to go, ah, I'm going to go sit in the woods and do fuck all and it's going to be beautiful. And they want to demonize you for that. <laughs> they 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 want to remove an yeah, analgesic yeah. from a man in pain. That again, you've hit the nail on the head. It's yeah. it's immoral, and it's because they're moralizing in this argument and going, "You've done something wrong, and you're continuing to do it wrong." Instead of going, "Okay, here's the symptom and consequence of an action. What is the the reason for yeah, yeah. it? What is the root cause?" But I think this is why what we're doing now is so important, right? So for me, like, I've kind of just been on my soapbox there, right? Ah, I like that, right? But then it's kind of one of them, right? It was a great word, which I like to park in your mind. It's kind of an epistemology. It's a lush word, isn't it, right? And I'm not, I can't tell you fucking definitively what it means, but I can tell you what, I, what it kind of, the, it means how do we know what we know? right epistemological studies got something to do with like the study of kind of how about life and learning and knowledge and all that right and i feel for me in some ways like what what i've got to remember right is i can get on my soapbox and i can rant about me and them and fucking all of that right and the moralizing and all of that stuff right but people are being programmed to believe this shit you know what i mean right so it's like so sometimes people's minds are blown when you think that like 3.2 million people used a drug an illegal drug last year in the uk that's like one in that's nine percent of the uk population it's fucking massive one in every 11 people in the uk used an illegal drug and you can get people go wow that is kind of a, a canny bit and then you go so like that 3.2 million people they're not all in treatment you know like there's only kind of 10 percent of people who then go on to develop kind of like like health harms which are attached to that to yeah. that drug use, do you know what I mean? Or they have dual diagnosis issues, right? So that, so what that suggests, I'm not a mathematician, but it, that there's a huge fucking population of people who are taking drugs like MDMA, they're using other kinds of substances that they're kind of, whether it's for a therapeutic purpose or kind of just because drugs are fun, right? Do you know what I mean? Like, let's start fucking being real, man. I, I teach cops, man, right? I teach cops, every cop in the Northeast, right? I, I teach them drug and alcohol awareness and harm prevention, right? I go in. I go to Durham Police, for instance. I'll go to Northumbria. I was teaching drug, 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 police drug expert witnesses four weeks ago, right? And they're all getting carried away, you know, because they've just got this potty fucking mouth, Geordie bloke, tattoo going, come on! Like, all energised, right? Like, right, stand up, you fucker. If you never took a drug in the go, oh, whoa! They remember where they are, you know what I mean? Because we, we, we live in a society, right? We live in a society where you kind of carry shame if you're a drug user and whether you're a... A, a problematic drug user, I fucking hate that term as well. Somebody who's disenfranchised through substances, or whether you're just somebody who uses substances from a like, and you haven't got any issues with it, you kind of still really struggle to come forward and be honest about that stuff. And I think for me, you know, that's why I've always wanted to be an open book and why I absolutely kind of respect you lads and then the Michael Fishers of the world and Chris and like and Dr. Carl Hart, you know what I mean? These yeah, guys who yeah. just come out and go, you know what, man? Like we, we smoke a bit of fucking dope, that doesn't make us bad people. But what we have to do, right? Or at least what we, or the proverbial we, or me, my job's to change people's minds on this, man. Do you know what I mean? My job's to be able to say to people, so like the the the, the misuse of drugs acts, like it's it's unjust, it's not grounded in science, and we need to do something 
to change it. Because, you know, like, I can get really frustrated in rooms with people who go, oh, well, this is terrible, and that's fucking terrible, and we're sick of this, and when's somebody going to change that? And I, I want to go, yeah, man. You fucking, fucking yeah. Like, when what you do you do in this fucking room? You <laughs> fucking, fucking right, do lad. it, right? You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, man. Stop, stop, th- stop. Let let's stop blaming commissioners. Let's stop blaming fucking drug treatment. Let's stop because it's all this blame culture, right? Like Simba, say you going fucking mental, mate. You fucking run yourself fucking ragged, like mad as a ship's hat, fucking all over trying to make things better. You know, Maka, you're the same, and Fisher's the fucking same, Danny Ahmed's the fucking same. I'm running around. This is me, not on cocaine, man. I knew what was I like when I was on it, but I knew what I was like when I was on it. But when I was on it, when I was on it, I was subdued, man, because I've definitely got some undiagnosed ADHD going on. Do you know what I mean? Definitely yeah. stimulants fucking grounded me, not made me high. Like, but but like we we get we all fucking saw as if we're waiting for everybody else to make the changes and there's that lovely quote man which is like be the change that you want to see man Good do you know what i mean like fucking, and and that for me is like that's that that's that that for me is kind of where i live my world right now you know is to mm. is i've been kind of really creative to push on doors to get me in places like the labor campaign for drug policy reform i'm not the most politically astute person in the world do you know what i mean but i've seen that as an opportunity then to be able to get myself in to, to, to sit down with, with Ron Hogg, bless him, do you know what I mean, and Mike Barton, like, to have the ear of, like, um, Jason Harwin, the National Police Chief Council lead for drugs, do you know what I mean? Jason and I have got a really fantastic relationship on the phone, we communicate, great work with cops like Jason Q down at Thames Valley, and and then you kind of get into a place where you start making a difference with this shit with naloxone, yeah, and you start, what we have to do, man, is we, ha- we, we have to kind of, we have to kind of just help people in communities to recognize that nice people take drugs and to be able to sit and have some of those conversations. But conversations which come from a place of like real honesty and education rather than, well, fucking, oh, I think all drugs are great. Well, why? Well, because they're fucking great when you're off your nut on it. How are mate? You know, let's, let's get into those conversations where we say, like, you know, like, MDMA is a class A drug. You, like you get caught with a quantity of MDMA and you're going to get put in prison for up to 15 years, you know. But like, did you know only 71 people died last year from taking MDMA? And that's a real tragedy that 71 people died. However, if you put if you look at the relative harms of MDMA and you put that against alcohol, for instance, so it's just short of seven, eight, eight thousand people died last year from alcohol. Yet that's legal. We can buy it in the shops, and it tells you on the back of the bottle how to drink it safely. So you know, a lot of the problems that come with regards to drugs and drug deaths and all that is because we're not we're not extending the same courtesy to people who use drugs to help them to stay alive, you know, and I just, like, I really struggle with that. I do some work with uh, Way of the Loop as well, and one of the farmers, I was trying to be a clever shite the other day, I was going on, uh, what was I going on? BBC Five Live or something, I think it's great when you know fucking pharmacists, and oh, I'm thinking, right. Because <laughs> I said, can I just check something out with you? I said, I fucking want to talk about fucking alcohol and all that, right? I was right on one. I said, am I right in saying alcohol is fucking ethanol? And uh, this pharmacist said, well, yes it is, do you know what I mean? I was like, right, what's the chemical formula for fucking ethanol? Because I didn't want to just go, oh, you know, like yeah, one yeah, of the yeah. biggest problems that we have in society today, it's alcohol. I wanted to say it's H2SO or whatever, do you know what I mean? And then he, so he told us that, but then he, then he sent us a text later and said, did you know it's also just one carbon atom away from acetone? And I think, what the fuck's acetone? It's nail varnish fucking remover, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I just think, you know, we, we live in a we live in a fucking really strange world where the vast majority of the population of the UK pretty much drink fucking nail varnish remover every fucking weekend and think that that's okay. But then what we're gonna do is we're gonna demonize somebody fucking who's a gardener. 
Do you know what I mean? It's like fuck me, who who yeah. grows a few plants? Or a baker, so I don't know, man. I just, I, I absolutely, man. Do you know what I, mean? I just kind of, I just feel, I, I just kind of feel obligated to, to use my lived experience to to speak from a place of truth, in in lots of different environments. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But kind of at yeah. the core, what I'm trying to do is get get people to fucking humanize people who take drugs because they because we're key. not bad people. That's you the know? key, man. <clears throat> and you know, like in, in this in this world of immediacy and polarization and dilution for anybody that's not familiar with any of those terms please go back and listen to the rest of the the episodes of this podcast because we've talked about the metal like it's a nice little plug there um now i've lost what i'm saying fuck uh, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll take the opportunity Great. then to, to to jump in yeah you draw an interesting comparison i mean dr david nutt was fired in the same year he was fired from the acmd was the year he released a paper entitled ecstasy compared with equestrianism um what are the harms and he showed that horse riding is far more harmful to the individual and potentially to society than the consumption of mdma um also the consumption of mdma onto the individual and the wider society it is credited to a lot of people that they die down in football firm violence um and sort of more community cohesion that developed in the early 90s was entirely down to the rave scene i was part of the second wave of the rave scene that then saw the commingling of many diverse subgroups and genres through the consumption of these substances people who were quite racist bigoted xenophobic and hateful of others and very um discriminatory of, of other lifestyles all of a sudden started to recognize there is commonality here there is decency in, in our shared human yeah. experience Alcohol, as you said, is responsible, according to World Health uh, Statistics, World Health Organization statistics, for 5% of all deaths. Um, So one in 20 of all deaths in the world occurs from the consumption of alcohol. As you said, it costs the UK 21 billion currently to police and the cost to NHS and to the wider society of the consumption of alcohol. And yet it is not a scheduled drug. Tobacco and alcohol are not scheduled. They are not considered within it because if they were taken and listed under the criteria for the scheduling, they would both be scheduled one drugs. If we suddenly did that overnight, our society would collapse. The British live on binge drinking. Last year during the pandemic, alcohol consumption went through the goddamn roof. It, the fact that it's taxed helps offset some of the harms to society. The same could be true of these substances, that if we then take that statistic of one in 10 people will develop a problematic uh, relationship. Again, I agree. I dislike the terminology of it, but I'll use it for continuity here. Uh, a problematic relationship with a substance. Um, if we then regulated the sale to the other 90%, we could use that to pay for their treatment. And as you say, put it as, as therapy, because this is what else I believe is you could take a chunk of that 90% of those people of the profits and put it into schools. So if we stopped these people like you or I being abused and being traumatized within institutions, within education systems, then we wouldn't grow up to have those, those, those um, potential precipitous yeah. factors that would make us um, potentially likely to have a problematic relationship with substances. Yeah, man. But equally as well, it's kind of about, isn't it about all sorts? About like, uh, it's just about speaking from a place of truth, you know, like you talk about like young people there as well. You know, I do a lot of drugs education in schools and it's always a bit like long before you get to work with the kids, you've got to go into, you've got to touch base with the head teachers and yeah. the, and the, the, um, the the what's the word I'm looking for? They're not trustees. What are they called? School governors. Because right? yeah. yeah. you've got to kind of almost court with them to get them to realise that like the goal. So um, so kind of what kind of message are you going to be portraying? And I'm saying, well, it's not going to be a fucking Grange Hill Danny Kendall just say fucking <laughs> no one. That's for sure because because that that doesn't work. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Just say no. 
No, bollocks. Doesn't fucking work, right? Year on year, drugs, drugs keep more and more people taking drugs. That shit doesn't work, right? But it's really, it's really bizarre, isn't it? That kind of like schools worry about kind of safeguarding and keeping kids safe and all the rest of it. But like the most important bits of information, advice, and guidance that they need around substances don't get truth because a lot of schools go what you might, you're going to educate the kids how to take drugs. I'm going to go, well, no, not really, but I am going to tell them how to fucking stay, stay safe when they're doing them because because young people are taking drugs. Do you know what I mean? And they're taking risks around the drugs. So so obviously, like, my, it has to be a case for me, you know, like, uh, it's almost a preamble for me. Is like the safest way to take drugs is not to take them, right? Because, like, not everybody's fucking sensible. We're in a time where we've got organized crime gangs who are in control of the drug supply. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Kind of like you, like, we have a bit of education on my side when it comes to kind of purchasing drugs or having drugs tested and all the rest of it. But young people aren't able to, to do that. You know, I, I worked now once, I'm sure there's something like 24,000 hours, right? that a young person spends in education from kind of going into junior school to leaving in secondary school, right? There's 24,000 hours, right, that they spend in school. And there's not any more than 10 of those hours which are spent formally teaching them about drugs and alcohol. And you think, fucking hell, that's bizarre, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? So like, so for for me, kind of, it, it is about going into schools and being absolutely upfront and honest with young people and saying, you know, kind of, like you need to be really aware of the of the risks and staying safe and but it's almost as if like society doesn't want to doesn't want to hear that. Do you know what I mean? And then also what we do is we deliver that drugs education in isolation in schools. So the schools will say, Oh, well you come in and speak to our six formers. I go, I but after I've spoken to fucking you and all your teachers and all the families as well, because it's pointless, like kind of given a really impactive drugs education session around telling the kids what you're going to do about staying safe and your parents aren't going to go mad when the parents or the teachers haven't had the luxury of going through that that exploration as well to kind of challenge some of those, I don't know, those unconscious biases and all those things that yeah. exist, man. So That's exactly it's, what it is. I don't know. It's weird. It's weird. Weird. Sorry, I've, I did. We've got quite far through this, and I've just realised that George has got like a two or three second um, delay the one when, when we speak. Um, you pulled up some naloxone before. Um, could you tell us who naloxone man is? Well, he's a fucking idiot. That's who he is. Like, <laughs> look at this man. Have you seen this? Look at these. Look at these. These here are prenoxone pants. Right, he keeps coming into my house, leaving, leave, leaving his shit everywhere. I, I think, I think him and my wife have a bit of a fucking thing Wee. going on. No, you know what it is. I'm telling you, right. So, um, so like, so I've been doing, uh, I've been doing like work with people who use drugs for twenty years. It was a couple of years ago. I thought, fucking now, like I'm working with with opiate users and I don't have naloxone and if I'm honest I was really naive as to what what naloxone was uh, I thought I need to get a kit when I understood that it could reverse drug related deaths I thought I need to get a kit um, so I got onto Twitter I'm a bit of a Twitter freak got in touch with the organisation locally and said can I get naloxone from your local service yes absolutely it won't be a problem so I phoned them up and said ow my name's George uh, can I get come down get some training and get one of them naloxone kits I said we don't do it I said you do man you definitely do do it, you know what I mean? I've been told by uh, by your national organisation that you do it. So can I come and get some? Oh, well, I'll take you. Uh, can I just take your name and your phone number and I'll, and I'll get someone to phone you back? I go, yeah, not a problem. So I wait a couple of days, no phone call. I phone back again, speak to somebody different. 
can I get one of them locks on kids? Oh, no, we don't stop. Me. I said, you fucking do, man. Do you know what I mean? Well, do you mind if I take your name and your phone number? I'm thinking, hang on a minute. What's the crack? Yeah. And uh, so then, I, honestly, over about a period of about six weeks, this is going back probably just short of two years ago, right? To and fro, and I ended up speaking to a harm reduction nurse. I said, Naloxone, she said, Yes, I'm responsible for the training and supply of Naloxone. I was like, Hallelujah, can I get one? She said, Who are you? I said, George Charles. She said, Who was I really not? I said, I, I said, Look, man, I'm working in like, <laughs> I said, I'm working with people with drug and alcohol problems all the time, you know, kind of. I'm led to believe that the only requirement to carry Naloxone is you're coming into contact with people who use drugs, and I am that. She said, Well, look, I'll drop you an email. I'll just ask me, boss. And I kind of said, Right, okay. And then I got an email that day, sent back off her that said, Well, very sorry. George, but we can't action your request. And I was like, ah, I was fucking raging, man. Well, what? Local drug and alcohol treatment service has got this stuff to save people's lives, and I can't get a fucking kit. Do you know what I mean? It was it was mental. So I went on a mission. I thought, I thought I'm not having it. Because the first thing I wanted to do was go on social media and discredit the organization who shall remain nameless on this podcast as well, right? Um, but I thought, you know what? I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna be better than that. So um I ended up going up to Scotland and I spent a, a spent a, a couple of days in Scotland with the peers that they had up there. They had people who were in recovery who go out into the community and go into like recovery cafes and brick buildings and they identify people and train and supply them when they're locked. So I came back from there just feeling like, fucking God, I really want to do this, man. And um, went and pushed on Foundation's door with Danny Armand and said, Danny, how I ever want to do this? You know what I mean? And we ended up... Um, developing a, a, a really brilliant peer-to-peer uh, -peer naloxone training and supply program that doesn't say that you have to be in recovery to be a volunteer. I think that's fucking discriminatory, do you know what I mean? But I also think some of the best uh, the best trainers of, of naloxone are people who have, have got living experience of addiction. They are networked and tapped into the community of people who use drugs, who are deemed as hidden populations. Again, not a term that I fucking like, because they're not hidden. Because I find them, and the drug users find them. Because we go out of our brick buildings and we go and fucking find them. They're not hidden populations. It's fucking in some cases it's treatment providers that are hidden. And then what we do is we uh, we we supply this kit. Three little twists. People get inside. Inside you've got a, a one um, two mil pre-filled syringe of naloxone hydrochloride. You have a little pin here which you can pop off the end. Take that bit off. Screw the needle on. It's almost as if I've going to have this planned, isn't it? And then you're going to take the you take the cap off the end to expose the pin. When you administer naloxone, it goes on the top of the arm or the fatty part of the leg, and it's literally straight in. Um, inject to the first black line, remove it, we put it back in its case. Wait two to three minutes to see if a person responds. Go back in another two to three, uh, another two mil, and then you're going to keep doing that until such time as the person comes around. Like naloxone. Naloxone works, um, it, it competes for the, the receptor in the brainway opioid set. And I, what we know of those people who've been dying, like 4,300, what, 4,359, 4,359 people who died of drug-related deaths last year, over half of all those deaths involved an opioid. So this drug, naloxone, is going to save people's lives. What, what release... Um, Reckoned down in, in London uh, 2018 was that only 16% of people who, uh, it, that out of the 100% of people who needed, only 16% of people got it. Do you know what I mean? So for me, it was about how do, you, how do we develop networks of people who we train up as naloxone champions yeah. and, uh, and get them going out into their communities, saving the lives of their mates. And they uh, were built an awesome project in 
in, in Middlesbrough, and then We Are With You came pushing on the door, developed a project for them in Redcar. Then they made a commitment in The Guardian to roll it out nationally in every one of their services, which is absolutely fantastic in terms of the peer-to-peer -peer approach. So all of these projects have naloxone, and all of the clients who come into services will get access to naloxone because the workers will do a quick bit of training and give them it. Mm -hmm. But there's a massive cohort of people in the UK who don't come to treatment. So if they're not coming to treatment, then they don't get access to this. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So uh, we did, did that in, um, in, in Redcar and kind of got that rolled out. Um, it, it, I've started doing that work down in Worcester with Cranstown, which has been absolutely fantastic. And I'm heading down to Wales in a couple of weeks to uh, the, the Welsh Government are supporting the development of peer-to-peer -peer naloxone training supply programmes down there, which I'm also building with uh, with Kaleidoscope and people who use drugs. But you know, for me, man, it's like this, right? I'm fucking, I'm nothing without the, the peers. Nothing at all. I've just, I've got, I've got more patter than a fortnight train, haven't I, right? So I'm a man of many words, right? I can kind of flirt with people, make people feel energised and feel good, but I'm fucking nothing. When I go down to Wales, I know nothing about Newport, where I'm going. I know nothing about where the drug user networks and drug user markets are. It's all about the peers, you know, and, and they're the ones who make these projects really, really special. So if we can do that with naloxone, can we do it with secondary needle exchange? Well, absolutely, yes, we can. So let's train peers of how to uh, how to take naloxone out, in, not just naloxone in a bag into the community, but now we're going to put clean injecting equipment and crack pipes and all of that stuff in a bag. And then when we're there, you know, I've went to some places, man, and it's like you think, fuck me. Like, there's a place in, in Linthorpe Road where uh, people are living around the back of there and it's just covered in human shit and piss and drugs paraphernalia and needles and dirty mattresses. And I always remember seeing a Ricky, one of the peers, Ricky, what do you say here? And Ricky says, this is somebody's home. And you think, fucking hell, it is somebody's home. This is what this is what our war on drugs has done, is pushed people to fucking use in places and spaces like that. So kind of one of our aspirations is a drugs litter project as well. So um, what, what what Danny and I have done is thought, um, well, you know what? Let's be the change that we want to see. So we've just legitimised a, a community interest company which puts uh, people with lived experience of addiction front and centre, right at the fucking heart of it. Um, and we're going to build, uh, we'll call it the Harm Reduction Union, the Middlesbrough Harm Reduction Union. And... Um, we're going to build chapters up and down the fucking country who can adopt the vision and principles, which is uh, that peers should be front and centre at the heart of fucking everything, but not you have to be in recovery. Yeah, that's bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm just on a mission. That's it, lads, man. I'm on a fucking mission, <laughs> yeah. and I love it. You, you really are, brother. You really are. Um, we should, we won't keep you any longer. Um. I look forward to, we'll obviously get you back on the podcast sometime in the near future. Hopefully you'll be able to give us an update on the, the rollout of these programs. Um, I doth my proverbial cap to you. I really do. I mean, like I say, anybody that can, right back at you, man. That, that can go through kind of the life that, that you have, you have gone through and not only find your own peace and find your own comfort and desire to live, but also to find the passion and the commitment and the desire mm. to want to, in the face of some incredible opposition in this, in our government, in international legislation to, to do the right thing by, by, by the, your peers, exactly that. These, these other humans, these, these yeah. people behind the statistics that, that fall beyond 
the the remit of traditional treatment and recovery yeah and i think that that is a, a truly a wonderful and commendable thing it is and just let's yeah, let's fucking restore humanity because that's the fucking key that's how we're going to get anywhere <laughs> it's the true man yeah yeah and what i'll say hashtag humanized drug users yeah, what i'll say to you is george is <laughs> one thing is keep that energy that you have man because you know what you were saying those goosebumps oh, it was about nice. six or seven fucking times through this podcast and even the first time i heard you speak they get transferred through you know the digital yeah, energy or whatever honestly because here's the thing you're you're you're, you're that kind of person no, on a, uh, like my cousin my cousin has that energy that you have and whenever he lights up and t- takes a story whenever he tells a story he lights up and would you know that kind of way? and that is yeah, completely transferable we need people like you man we absolutely do so keep doing but it. it and you know what man and i hear that man but you know like when it comes down to it for me it's like this right like fucking without all of that in my life that i wouldn't be where i am right now so i have a real i, I genuinely mean this you know i kind of have gratitude like i'm and those experiences i was hurt i was hurt during those experiences yeah. growing up you know what i mean i hurt a lot of people as well in terms of my 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 drug use and all that but it brought me to a fucking place now where i'm in a position to be able to help people to live right and and, and you know man it's like like my dad died two weeks ago you know and it's like fucking my hero i lost my mom 16 years ago and um, my dad died two fucking weeks ago like and and he was my fucking hero and he was my best mate and uh, he was a bit like the kurgan of highlander he was going to live forever in my mind you know and and i think sometimes man I think sometimes we forget that there's like there's no fucking trial run here, man. Like this is it right now, today, yeah. man. Like today is what it's about, you know. And and I'm and I'm blessed to have fucking been on a call with you lads today with fucking drug user activists just like me. Do you know what I mean? But like we don't all have to be gobshites like me and give people fucking goosebumps. Do you know what I mean? It, it's just about like are we are we are we are we prepared to just kind of show some love and compassion for yeah. a fellow human being? You know, like do we do we just rather than take one step to the right of a homeless person and walk around them, can we not just like give them a quid, but can we also give them five minutes of our time? You know, and kind of find out who's he and what's he about? You know, because it's his one last, it's his one shot on this planet. And I think like the sooner we realise that fucking like. Like that, this is it, man. Yeah. This is it. Then we can, then then that's where the love is for me, man. You know, like, uh, God, fucking two weeks, say uh, two weeks ago, I, I lost my fucking best pal in that. But you know what, man? Uh, no sadness, only fucking pride, man, because that man, uh, that man was the epitome of uh, unconditional love when everyone around him was saying, you get rid of that fucking lad because he's a fucking disgrace and don't go down with a sinking ship and you'll always make you fucking miserable and you'll, and, and you know what, he, he didn't fucking listen, man, and he did nothing but show me fucking love and compassion and warmth and hope and belief and look what happens, man. And I, and I want to finish on this one, right? Your love has fucking power, man. Yes. Your love has power. Yes, and, it was, and it was the power, the power of his love and belief that I believe yeah. is what has got you sat here today. Yeah. So, yeah, See, what a wonderful yeah, gesture yeah, it went on. Folks, you can keep up with George yeah. at georgecharlton.com. Uh, we will um, share links to his counselling services as well below, as well as some of the links to peer support groups is how you can get involved if you feel that... Um, getting training and access to Naloxalone <laughs> would help you as well. Um, George, thank you very much. We won't keep you any longer. We'll let you get your prior commitments. It's been a pleasure, honestly, brother. I look forward to being able to yes. share a room with you soon and chat some shit and actually, Absolutely. you know, I mean, get together. 
Definitely. Thank you I so much, I want one of them man. hugs, man. Never mind chatting the shit. Big yeah. hug, right? Proper Love these guys. Right. Take care. Thanks, Peace and love, George. We'll see you later, man. Bye. Peace out. Peace out. Bye. Bye. Oh, the energy off that man is is unbelievable. He'll uh, calm down now, folks, for a well, little bit. Here's um, the thing. <laughs> I was just thinking about this, right? Do we legitimately want to subject people to us talking utter shite when there's <laughs> so much of that that you just have to fucking process? Not not in a bad way, but I'm just yeah. saying that the energy that that man mm-hmm. has is enviable. It really, really is. Yeah. And to be able to sort of just be so bouncy and bubbly and you know that kind of way have that and fucking hell I don't know I see I'm already ruining it <laughs> I don't even know what to fucking say in comparison you're, like. not, you're not at all we're, 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 look we're, we're slowing it slowing it down like it's George's because he's obviously been on this for such a long time and he's really honed his craft and his skills that I heard that that was a horrible sound <laughs> welcome to my life Oh my god. Sorry about that, uh, guys. I didn't know we were doing ASMR on the uh podcast. People today. pay for that, you know. Well, there you go, folks. Check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash simple life for more Maca cracks. <laughs> top top <laughs> tier, you get a personal Maca crack recorded into uh, in high fidelity. Yeah, we'll also be launching a competition. If you can guess which body party is cracking, you oh, could win. <laughs> we really want to uh, open that kind of <laughs> Anyway, uh, no, the, the, the point is, though, that we can use this time to kind of uh, explore more of some of the concepts that, that George spoke of there. And because he is so informed and, and passionate, um, he touched on quite a lot of the subjects lightly, but it was because of the limited time that we had. I mean, we could have had him for four fucking hours here, and we still would have felt like we haven't got enough of the information and his kind of story of him. Like I say, guys, you've got a very brief introduction to his story there at the start when he introduced himself, but I'm, I'm not going to, I'm, 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 I'm not, all I'm going to say is that we will have him on again and mm. George will, he always seems to express his life in a different way. I've been lucky enough to, I think three times I've seen him speak twice in person, once a, on a, a digital platform and same every, every times you've seen him twice in person speak once. However, you make that sentence work. I don't know. Look at you, Three, you're two, so one. Semantics. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, the, the the point is, look, he's, we didn't even get to touch on the work that he's been doing with, with police, with helping to get naloxone into the hands of police, which is already, we've already seen that deployed in the field and actively save lives. Um, like I say, the fact that he speaks so highly of lived experience and i think if you froze am i tripping no no you're just standing in nothing i'm telling you i'm telling you like this is i'm still pro- i'm even still processing the energy here mm. so I'm, I'm sort of a bit sort of like i don't know that's like i needed that i needed that <laughs> It's an uplift. It really is an uplift. It is, but it is it is transferable. It is. There are people that are like that um, down in their core, you know, that mm. kind of way that that just have this draw. Like, honestly, I'm hooked on every single word the man says. Do you know that kind of way? It's you it's know. it's. Uh, yeah. I really hope that people go back and listen to, and and listen to this a couple of times. You know. Uh, fucking because honestly yeah. he like i i've been looking forward to george coming on since we started this because mm. i remember i remember <clears throat> so the first time that i that my experience was we were we were at the the durham uh, autumn, expo. autumn expo so it was in the autumn expo and the first time around when you go to an event like that you your mind you know 
your mind is sort of gone grand. It's like 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 Amsterdam. I can just walk around and fucking smoke away and consume it to my heart's content and chill the fuck out. And that was the first. That was the first experience. Second experience, we made more of an effort to actually go to the the panels and the educational talks and stuff like that. Just similar enough to what we do in the podcast, except you know life. Mm. And uh, I just remember. I, <laughs> I had chilled out I was set mid row on the back going grand this is going to be you know five six people on a panel everybody's just going to be nice and chill like myself and Sipa normally normally chat away and then George comes on he's like wow the fucking starts roaring I'm like whoa shit I need to sit the fuck up here and it literally everything was like that and I, I couldn't I couldn't get over it I like to a point where I, I remember the words that he said I remember the start of the story but there's no fucking way I'm taking that away from him especially if we get on get him on again it was so captivating and relatable and it's very it's it's quite fun uh, not fun it's quite funny to sort of um, you were pointing out relatability to to your upbringing and or yeah for, for lack of a better term in comparison to George's Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, I found it relatable. Like, uh, you know, there was points in my childhood when, when I was growing up, I was insufferable. I was a dickhead. You know, that kind of way. I pushed away everybody. I knew exactly what he meant when he was saying, like, uh, schools were all <clears throat> niche and cliquey. And, uh, you know, he found, like, that he didn't fit into any. That was fucking me. I was trying so fucking hard to fit into 10 of them all at once that because I literally didn't fit into any of them. So I, I get it. Mm-hmm. But it's really, really telling is um, the accumulation of like traumatic experiences, like he said. What would he say? Like four, four plus four, or something. Four plus adverse effects. I can't remember. Yeah. It, it, scale you, or something you, like it that. scales up to like 10 times or 11 times more likely. Yeah, to 11 be, more t- Yeah. Yeah. But when he was saying that, it was like, well, you know, <clears throat> there's, there is an awful lot of common ground between the three of us. It just so happens that the accumulation of those traumas, um, you know, obviously add to our, added to our individualized sort of environment that we're growing up, sort of dictate as to where we land on that sort of um, echelon of, of fucking um, shared experiences. That makes sense probably yeah. bottled out near the end there but you know it got a bit faffy um <clears throat> but it no it is it is interesting to say um to, to to ponder that like do you know in that kind of way yeah there's there's an interesting um school of thought in philosophy and i can't remember what branch so somebody chuck it in the comments if you happen to know what i'm about to talk about um is that everything is determined there is no free will if you zoom out large enough from your life exactly that mechanism occurs across everything if everything has a measurable and determinable factor, everything is a logical consequence of everything else. So therefore, if you have these adverse effects in childhood, because you have the, the same that the rate by which is 11 fold, you're more likely to, I think it's have... Uh, Be involved in, cr- in crime. Uh, that it? No, 11 fold to, uh, to have a potential, a potential problematic, again, poor terminology, but a difficult uh, relationship and a higher propensity for um, dependence of a substance. Um, so what I think is then if you look at that in this idea of then philosophy, then it's almost a consequence once you've seen those events. So what if that's the, the thought process, you could map, you could intervene, intervene in this in, say, the, the, 
years of puberty, <clears throat> the point of highest volatility. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's when therapy, that's when engagement needs to be there. That's when I had a hell of a lot of intervention personally in my life from all kinds of avenues, from child psychological services, from social services, uh, from the state, from education service, everything was, was involved in my life. And all of it was trying to steer and direct shit. When actually, if they'd had that mechanism and gone, oh, fuck, look at what it, where he's been and what he's gone through let's look at the potential for what's going to come forward. Mm. And then exactly as George spoke of, of, we're getting better with this. We're getting a hell of a lot better with this. But for a lot of the treatment I was in for most of my life was exactly that. Until you're sober, you ain't getting shit. You're not, you can't. You can either wait until you are the worst of the worst and suicidal. You can go in and see crisis team. Or that's it. Yeah. That, that, was the, that was the spectrum. You either, you either tore the line, take the SSRI, stop all drug use and engage in the therapies we want. When what I was saying was, I'll titrate drug use, I'll limit alcohol consumption, and I'll try to sleep every night and engage in a better routine and engage in therapy. Yeah. And that was not an accepted um, compromise. Whereas now, especially with what I've been doing over the past several years, I mean, I've just finished a, a DBT course, group, group therapy, where in one of the slides, I actually got them to rewrite the slide because they put it down as drug use as being a problem and I put no, uh, substance abuse. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So even that kind of mechanism showing that there is now, they are willing to have that conversation. They are willing to engage with this. So it's on, I put on my health records a few years ago about microdosing LSD and psilocybin when I did the BBC documentary about LSD as, a, as much as anything as a, a defense in court that if they ever came from me, yes, I utilize these substances, I microdose them for their therapeutic properties. They're currently not available as medications and nor is there a legitimate route for me to take them holistically. So that's the best defense that, that I can that I can have from that. And since doing that, I mean, that took a lot of fucking work. That took me actually going through several different GPs to find an individual that was willing to make that as a case note. So you can see why people then are struggling to to engage with services if they're then told you're bad and that's bad. And I mean, the, the consumer ends yeah. up knowing far more than the fucking doctor. Well, exactly, yeah. But the other thing, like that's what the point I was trying to make sort of halfway through the session there with George was um, that if titration was offered as a viable course of action at an earlier stage, chances are you'd have an increased um, uh, fucking stabilizing effect. No, you'd have a, an increased uptake. Yeah, yeah. The people that would that would be, you know what I mean. If if that was there and and like an acceptable thing, so you kind of you were able to sort of identify, um, or have the epiphany at any stage, mm -hmm. and not feel like almost like you have to get to that real tipping point to be taken seriously. To be, mm. do you know that kind of way? You you, you sort of you've got to erode away your fucking um natural being in order to mold yourself into this fucking um recondition reconditioned and re rehealthified there's a word for you um version of yourself do you know what i mean fit into this model this yeah I th yeah i think in a lot of ways and something that i've had a problem with a lot of uh, especially abstinent based recovery programs is yeah exactly that it's almost I term it in my own head, but I'm not sure how confident confident I am putting it out to the world. Of like the the cult of wellness, of the people in recovery, exactly what George says. They then spend all their time talking about drugs and alcohol. They yeah. spend their time, not in my opinion, not having conquered their addiction, but having or their dependency, but having ceased it, being able to go 
it's it's stopped. Whereas to me, the same way I, I got over tobacco in the past was I knew I'd stop tobacco when I could keep it in the house for weeks at a time and not touch it. Not Having it. access, same with alcohol, is I didn't have a problem particularly with alcohol. I just didn't like who I was when I was drunk. I didn't like the decisions I was making. I didn't like the beds I was waking up in. I didn't like the fights I was getting in. It was just not my crack. And so I decided to to, to, to step away from <laughs> not my crack and then, you know what I mean? Um, so I, I, I decided to sort of step away from that. But then now there's alcohol in the house because every now and then, every very rare occasion, there will be let's have a drink with something as either a celebration or as an amplification of a yeah. situation yeah. rather than a, a, a tool of obliteration. So that that is me having controlled that. If I'd have then gone, oh my God, and I'd self-perpetuate that narrative, going, I can't go in a pub because I'll drink. And then if I drink, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, yeah. a tr I'm in trouble again. Yeah. And I think that that's what needs the narrative that isn't in recovery, that it's not a case of stopping. If you then slip and then accidentally, accidentally, you know what I mean? If you would then end I up do. consuming again, it doesn't then negate all of the other work. You're not back to zero all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. You're always moving forward. You may take a slight step to the side, but it is not a step backwards as long as you are conscious of it and recognize it again in that same dbt group there was a guy there who had a, pr a problem with with cocaine and he was saying that how he used to abuse it and whatever else and then he said two weeks ago he had it with, uh, for a session and he only had a few lines he had a couple of cans with it and he was just like no, wasn't worried. wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a thing yeah literally was then just like woke up the next day a bit more hungover than he was intending to and was just like we oh i didn't like that i've been swimming in the sea it stopped us doing that so i was kind of like all right. And then I sort of said to him, then look, dude, you haven't, you haven't slipped or relapsed. You, you recovered. You've been able to take the substance again. And instead of going at fucking five in the morning, shit, let's get a couple more grams. You know what I mean? And keep this party going and keep going and going and going. Yeah. You've recognized and gone, oh, I'm done for the evening. I'm going to bed. You've then even woke up in the morning conscious of it and gone, was the reward of the experience of doing that by myself in the house versus the suffering that I can't then engage with the life that I wanted to worth it. Made the active choice and gone, I'm just not going to do that. That that's recovery to me. It is, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> there's a there's an inherent fear of relapse because of this the built up societal ex expectation. Do you know that kind of way? This these mm -hmm. are the therapies that we want you to go through, um, so that when you when you do falter, it is sub. Not, it's not even subliminal. It's sort of semi subliminal that 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 sort of expectation is put upon you. You have let the system down. We've put all of this in, uh, uh, fucking effort into fucking your rehabilitation, and you've you've bottled it. Guess what? Everybody bottles it, mate. Do you know that kind of way? Fucking hell! It it can be applied to anything. It can be applied yeah. to fucking being consistent with your exercise for fuck's sake. Um, and that's for anybody that that listens that doesn't <clears throat> doesn't you know consume anything or thinks that they don't consume any sort of substance you know while drinking their coffee and smoking their fag um well even eat, eating their sugar man eating you know, sugar which is yeah. cancer basically um but yeah i can't remember where i was going with it now there's going to be an awful <laughs> lot of this i'm still processing <laughs> george man it's no exactly it's 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 good it's good and i think that this has given uh hopefully our listeners and our audience an opportunity to kind of wind down with us rather than just, I didn't want to just cut off after George delivery. Even if we'd gone an hour and a half, I still think I would have wanted a bit of calm time on the recording just to allow for the slower processing and to kind of like I say, mull over some of the, the concepts that we, we discussed with George and expand them a little bit. Um, like we said about the naloxone, it, it's quite interesting that a lot of companies now are developing other antagonists, other sub drugs that are 
that fit to the receptors that are not psychoactive, that don't then have uh, sedatory or respiratory sedation effects. So then they can reduce overdose. The other side of this is then drugs being used to help people get off drugs. So Ben Sesser at the clinics down in Bristol, they're using MDMA to treat uh, alcoholism currently. Didn't I also hear, and that's a semi-gloss over, I was uh, checking the unexpected message there. Um, didn't I also hear um, that they were inventing a synthetic uh, cannabinoid um, to fucking do the same thing as say, um, what, na- nanoxalone? Is it naloxalone? Naloxalone? I can't actually pronounce it. Naloxone. Naloxone. N-A-L-O-X-O-N-E. Yeah, are they not doing the synthetic haven't. I haven't seen anything personally but it is not only probable it's entirely possible um and likely because yeah think about it i mean if if we're perpetuating in this world where i'm not going to say the myth of skunk psychosis because some people do have adverse effects and can suffer psychosis as a result of consumption of cannabis a lot of these will be down to um latent pesticides fertilizers and other chemical compounds that are left within and through the cultivation process in a criminalized market. But also the, the people that then do have these events have uh, precipitous factors. There are other things that we would have led up to this. Um, cannabis in and of itself does not cause psychosis. Otherwise, everyone that takes cannabis would, cause, would get psychosis. Mm-hmm. We discussed this recently with coffee, that I've suffered uh, effects of, of caffeine-induced psychosis. But that's not to say that then caffeine causes psychosis. In people that have a precipitous sort of makeup shall we say and a likelihood or propensity to have these experiences which i do unfortunately um then used in in excess then used on say an empty um an empty stomach for example also used in conjunction with other uh substances that would then amplify the metabolism of caffeine um then resulted in that one one of one or two occasions in me having that that psychosis like event but having known and experienced those types of events on other substances and in other from life uh, events like relationship breaks ups and things like that, uh, I knew how to deal with the situation. So I was able to walk myself through it. So the education I had and the lived experience helped me lessen that experience rather than going, I'm losing my fucking mind, amplifying the situation and getting caught within the anxiety and stress that it would induce. And I think that if, if, again, if we could provide that education to other, other areas, it's... <clears throat> it's then just a case of as we've discussed several times in this podcast it's like nuts we just package things that have got cannabinoids in and go if you've got a, a not an allergen but a propensity to have a negative effect from taking cannabinoids don't take cannabinoids in the same way that if you, you're a vegan you don't eat meat you don't you just you don't eat meat yeah how do we break down the barrier of resistance or do you know what i mean like when when george was talking about um, talking in schools and stuff like that and it's 10 hours in an isolated environment after being semi-vetted semi-vetted by the fucking governors and the and the, the headmaster or the headmistress or would the head teacher should i say at this stage mm-hmm. um <clears throat> i can see it especially especially because an awful lot of our schools have a religious structure to them so the, I mean, an awful lot of that is going to cause resistance. Um, yeah, we should think of like, look, sex education in schools, well, I mean, right? Jesus so drugs, Christ. drugs is if yeah. drugs are still controversial and there's legality issues and all of that, 
Yeah, look at sex education in school, right? There you go. It, it, it's a fucking joke. None of it, right? I know this is obviously going to be quite a hard topic for us, probably some people to hear, and there's a lot of people that I feel are somewhat Person the fuck or, up. Or, overzealous of uh, their protection of children or their belief in their protection of children. But we have to teach children about pleasure, about responsibility, about consent, about more than just the mechanics and the biology of the situation. They need to be taught about the consequences. They need to be not just STIs. They need to be taught about the social consequences, getting fucking pregnant for fuck's sake, um, relationship structures, etc. These things need to be discussed. It shouldn't just be left up to a child, the, the peak of hormone drivenness to be thrown out into the world and expect not to fuck shit up. Do, do you know what I mean? So if we're at that point, because there's still so much moralizing, we're going, oh, but we shouldn't teach them. We should, oh, 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 oh. Who are you to make their fucking choices for them? They were born with an innate ability and, frankly, a desire and drive to engage in sexual behavior. What it is and who they choose to do it with is their own prerogative. And that should for, forever remain, remain that. But if our government, if our structure of education, if any of this is worth anything, it is to provide people with basic information, access to education and to knowledge for them to make a best informed decision. Yet there's still some schools that will not fucking teach contraception because it goes against, as you said before, their moral inclinations. So exactly that. How the fuck do we then get accurate, reflective, unbiased, non-stigmatizing and non-persecutive drug education onto the syllabus? That is a long long fucking way so we need people like george to be able to wiggle through all yeah. of that bullshit bureaucracy to get there and go you know what kids yeah a lot of most people that take drugs one of a fucking problem is broken uh like every other fucking system the policing system as we've seen recently which i definitely do not want to talk about right now because i definitely have to wrap this up in an, uh, soon and that is a we almost need an entire episode on that especially from what we've seen recently yeah, that may be a, a good opportunity for us to pull Neil Woods back in as a guest in the yeah. near future. That would be, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, fucking hell, I can't believe it. Anyway, <clears throat> the just to sort of reel it back in before I get tangentially pulled away into the, the, the police. <laughs> yeah, tangentially. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> the education system, having been in it myself, is terrifying. It's fucking terrifying. It's like the uh, the jumping through the hoops, the like the companies that are there to sort of ensure everything is running solid and give solid ratings and all of this. It's utter horseshit. I tried my best not to fucking name them there, but it's really obvious who I'm talking yeah. about. Um, it's it's horseshit. It's absolute fucking nonsense. It is what we were saying. Conform to this curriculum here. Fucking digested. <laughs> That's the attitude. Still, still, yeah. man. Do you know what I mean? And the only fucking difference is you're not being beaten. You're not being, you know, being being bludgeoned with, with belts and fucking um, rulers and what. In, in, in other ways. In other ways. Because you know it, what exactly. I mean? They're not they're not punishing the individual now. They're punishing the class. Yeah. The, but the all story. the time all the time it, it there's this attitude and this is our this is our fucking problem right as as from a society's perspective this is this is our problem globally is we have this fucking uncontrollable desire to resist anything that isn't that's new that's change do you know what i mean that's like like oh we can't do that we, we 
because this works and we've already got this and it's going to change everything and we always sort of weaponize it by um some sort of unspoken um radicalization or fucking decoupling of the current zeitgeist do you know that kind of way oh that's going to change all of our traditions and all of this i've heard this shit like uh, uh, this isn't going to be you know uh, there's no Ireland of old anymore. There's no England of old. Oh, it used to be fucking brilliant back then. Ge- every generation has this problem. You know that kind of way. And I don't think that we're gonna get get away from it. Unfortunately, I don't think our generation is any fucking different. I don't think Gen Z's generation is any fucking different either. Um, I thought that for a while, but uh, you know, randomly yeah. spending um, more time than normal on TikTok. And using a, a base base algorithm, so ba- you haven't liked anything, so everything comes in raw. Yeah, it's fucking poison. It's poison. Like mm-hmm. honestly, it is the depths of human fucking desperation, and it's centered around Gen Z, which I had massive fucking hopes for. And it just Wait. seems like they're no different. They're no different to us or any of our generations that have gone before. We're just going to end up in the same sort of non-progressed state of fucking mediocrity well, there you go there's some nice yeah. fucking um, well, positivity for you well no i mean it's 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 inbuilt into if you sort of look at anthropology i think if you look at sort of our human evolution we we i think briefly touched on this in a previous podcast of the idea that the the teenagers rebel because way back when it was a way for the tribe to move forward it was the courage of youth that drove them forward, whereas the elders wanted to stay put. They were more conservative, whereas the youth wanted to go and explore and find new lands and find new things. Yeah. And it's it's that that yin yang, that fighting, that that to and fro, the balance of um of society. And I think that it nostalgic nostal- no, but I think that it's innate to to it to to our to our to our beings, to humanity. And I think what it is is as you get older, that drive to you you then go too far you'd spread yourself too thin so you get to a certain point you do your work in life you know what i mean as the worker ant, as it were you do your bit and then that nostalgia kicks in that conservatism kicks in and that going i'm gonna settle and things should calm down a bit and we've done that we've changed because they've seen the change from yeah. where they started to where they are yeah, so yeah. Then a lot of people get worried seeing the change going forward so we need to figure out the mechanism and go right no i've done my bit my vote doesn't count anymore I'm I'm sick. I'm seventy. I'm whatever. Well, we yeah no. I, you know I, what I mean. I, I, step- yeah, but see, that's only applicable of what we are in now. Whereas if if us yeah. at sixty were to hold a mantle, and here's my mantle currently. That sounded like I just shit on Gen Z, right? It's more of a I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. I'm getting old now, right? And you know, <laughs> but here's the thing: the disappointment comes from. Do you know what? You can do more fucking crack the fuck yep. on lad yep. go on go on keep going keep but going mo- don't fucking mo- stop yeah but more than ever right this this is the greatest drug of our days yeah this kills more people this enslaves more this 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 perpetuates that our paradigm our cultural existence it, it tells us what to think what to eat what is cool what friends we should like and follow you know what celebrities that we should engage with and all of this shit it determines our newsfeed it, it that thing right this generation were born with it in their goddamn hand before they could ask questions before they hit puberty and realize that life is about connection and others and and experience they're locked into this goddamn thing and everything is boring and less colorful and less instantaneous and And so it's our generation and the generations above that have then enslaved our youth they have sold our future so they can gain comfort today 
So I don't blame Gen Z at all. I do it. I am disappointed, I but, 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 but not in them, but out <laughs> of the outcome of the situation, because yeah. they've, they've been, like I said, they've been thrust into a position where everyone has gone, fix the shit. Here's every generational problem we've discovered for the past century. Go on then. Go on then. You've got the internet. You've got money. You can go to Mars and shit. Figure it out. Come on. Come on. And then we're going, eh, but the fighting over genders and eh, the fighting over this and the fighting over that and this. And it's like, that's them in progress doing the fucking work. They have to figure out the system because for far too long and far too much of our cultural norms and our accepted societal um, things are done because oh, it's tradition and it's we've always done it that way. And so long, we've long since lost the reason why those things occur. It's just become that weaponization of tradition, as you say, mm-hmm. of people that are standing fast in, in the, the tides, trying to cup the water back. Do you know what I mean? And all that's doing is it's holding back these pockets and they become, like you say, toxic. The water stagnates. Nothing can live with yeah, it. But... And, it's, and, and these, these people now have the resource to build dams. So more water than ever is diverted. So again, hence the reason I feel that they're, they're more a victim than any generation, unfortunately, no, because of expectation. I absolutely agree. And that was the point I was going to make. So, like, I should just... Um, how do I say it? I should just sort of uh, <clears throat> no, because it's not a preface. It's not a preface because I've already fucking said it. So what's the opposite uh, of preface? A suffix. Suffix. <laughs> suffix, suffix. All right. I, I should have said um, <laughs> was that Gen Z are actually being um, infiltrated massively, so and exploited. Mm, um, no, no, no. That is the truth of it. I did. I sent you on some of this. You should definitely read 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 it. Is um, like. We, we've spoken about it before, like the wellness um, and, you know, you, likes of yoga and stuff like that um, being completely infiltrated by the right, right wing. Um, and then you can have this like completely balanced image of self, you know, all completely kitted out in fucking gear and whatnot, and then be 100% racist right at the end of your message and stuff like that. And what we're seeing is, um, and to, which is one of my biggest fears, is um, almost every avenue that's associated with say uh progressive left i don't like left and right basically being sound as fuck you know being sound to the planet being sound to people you know being you know being um emp- um having empathy for you know um people that are homeless say for instance or you know basically that's what i'm trying to get at every part of this is being influenced infiltrated by the right wing uh so much so that what they do is they have a top top end or surface level um progressive left stance say oh environmentalism yeah i'm gonna fucking fight the environment i'm gonna do all or, or fight for the environment and do all of this <laughs> kind of stuff fight the environment well when in actual fact um what you find are political sort of um tropes i guess or um like anti-immigration say for instance being that's the root of of um what is actually being being put out into society but at the top level it's i'm fighting for the environment do you see what i'm saying it's very in the fucking root of it yeah so it's a a co-opting of and especially like an yes that's the word i was in an, an astroturfing of grassroots movements progressive movements and yeah. yeah so you see it all the time with people infiltrating i mean 
all lives matter is a good way of looking at this. So that was a counter to black lives matter. And they were trying to present it in a positive light of going, Oh, well, no, but everybody, yeah. everybody matters. And it was this, it's a dog whistle. It's a giant dog whistle for racism. And you, you see, it was quite, quite a lot of, of policies, as you say. So you end up with um, like the conservatives now looking at progressive drug policies, for example, that are not going to help the end consumer and not going to better society, but are going to make them a fuck ton of money to create an entheogenic private clinics to be able to sell MDMA and ketamine therapy, LSD therapy, DMT therapy, yeah. while still criminalizing all the dirty hippies who do it in nature. And all of a sudden then get this, Hey, we should just like live in the woods and like, you know, use our own water. That could, no, but that's the extremity of it. But most people that have entheogenic experiences become more connected and concerned with environmental issues. That's just a fucking given. You know, yeah. people that eat magic mushrooms suddenly want to go, we should protect this shit. You see how magic this is, that beautiful ball of light in the sky that gives birth to all of this every day. You know, the, the dirt that, that provides us food, the air that gives our look, you suddenly, it's, it's there, it's everything. Beyond the fancy shit, the garbs we dress ourselves in and the fancy technology we have to distract ourselves and the concrete cages we live in, you suddenly feel human and fucking alive. They can't have you doing that in a field or at a festival. Or at a fucking free party with hundreds of other people listening to music and being uh, co-mixing with fucking dozens of different cultures and races and ethnicities and people. They need you to do that in a private clinic where they can control that outcome. And you have that very specific revelation that helps you deal with your, your PTSD or your anxiety and depression just enough that you can become a functional member of a capitalist society. Right. So you will you spend, be you'll become a- Yeah, you're dependent yeah, ex on exactly. fucking, you, on so us. That's, that, yeah, so that's, that's the whole way all of this is. That's what any of it is. What did they say? No man will ever give you an education to overthrow him. And that's where we're at. We are being taught and misled and manipulated at every fucking turn. Everything is workshopped. Everything is polished. So that exactly that it goes through this churn of mainstream media and acceptability. So um, get the fucking, get the darkies out, get the foreigners out. Be suddenly becomes uh, take back power suddenly becomes, you know, oh, it's for the fisheries. Oh, it's 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 for, for independence it's, and blue passports. Suddenly, and... this is happening now. Well, yeah, but that's the, the what I'm saying is that yeah, mechanism. Yeah, yeah. So they just feed in their ideology of their hatred and their, like, oh, homelessness or drug addiction. So now and what's happening, they churn this through, and all of a sudden it's, well, we're going to now create more anti-cannabis propaganda while several members of our sitting government are making millions off the back of legal cannabis, medical cannabis, and they're yeah, for people yeah. that can't see that. It's a fucking farce. It's a fucking joke. They are co-opting all of this shit from under us. They have removed everything. For the past century, they have been at war with the commons. They have taken the land from us. They have taken our right to move. They have taken our right to travel. They have taken our, our right to free existence. They have taken our right to expression. They have taken our right to explore our consciousness, to, to, uh, to uh, converge together, to, to build our own communities and to live in our own ways. So now can they take the right and put it in the fucking bin? That'd be great. <laughs> That's the right you can take and put it in the fucking bin. Well, the thing, it's unfortunately, it, the left and right isn't quite what it is anymore. No, it's, it's, it's the the, the left is, is doesn't fit in it. As we've spoken of before, the left and right are part of the neoliberalistic capitalist spectrum. That's the, their politics. That's the yeah. democracy we're allowed to operate in. So if you go, oh yeah, I should be able to live off the land or whatever else. That's on left wing. That's not neoliberalistic. If you go, I don't want to engage in this shit and have to buy a new iPhone every other fucking year and I don't want flashy cars and clothes and, and whatever excessive consumerism, you just want to eat, live, raise a family and, and have nice experiences, you know, read and educate yourself and, yeah, utilize the internet or whatever else, but in a responsible way. That No, that doesn't fit on that fucking spectrum. 
So this is why the vast majority of people do not vote, because they're disenfranchised and not represented by this dwindling, dying, draconian, archaic ideology. It, it's not representative of us. Look at the House of fucking Lords. Look at the House of fucking Commons. Look at the system they have built, the pomposity, the pageantry. It's fucking, it's, it's off-putting to everybody. Any common man looks at this, goes, fuck me running, Jesus Christ. The reason people like Boris and that get ahead with their buffoonery and their appearance of, of not being able to do anything is exactly because of that. They go, ah, one of them's fallible. Look, he's human. I've got something in common with him. You know, I, I bet he pisses. He, got, he has a shit in the morning. Look at him. Do you know what I mean? Whereas the rest of them just constantly in this, and it's just fucking, you, you can't see beyond it. So then the reason people like Trump and, and Nigel Farage get ahead somewhere is because they talk to the common man. Again, I'm air quoting there for listeners. They, they suddenly are speaking to their ideology and often it isn't their ideology. They're just speaking something they've heard down the pub rather than on fucking BBC news. And I think that's the difference. Yeah. Politics has to be representative of our cultures and our communities and it's did just you know, fucking not <clears throat> did you know that do you know this cameo thing that's gone around the app yeah where celebrities you, and shit celebrities yeah. yeah so Nigel Farage is on that should, uh, should we should we do a whip round and fucking get him to come on 50 quid I'm actually serious I'm actually deadly serious let's do a whip round right <laughs> all of our listeners trying to quit each you know, I'll try and fire or whatever we get him on we get him on fuck it why not all right, I'll tell you what, this this would be a nice that, way that to would end be this. Incredibly <laughs> controversial. Fuck it, you know I always say we need to be controversial, uh, courting more controversial guests. Unfortunately, I do think <coughs> I do think it is pre-recorded. Otherwise, we can we can get him assist. We get him give us fucking shout out. No, do you know I want to hear Nigel Farage say Brexit was a mistake. How much will it cost us to get him to say Brexit was a mistake? Fifty fucking quid, because I'd say he's just. Well, say because that shows how fucking. Immorally fucking, bankrupt the man is. And this is just—I—I—I I, I think you could pay him to say anything. To be quite honest about it, genuinely, I could say I, I, we offered him a hundred quid to say Jeremy Corbyn was right. I guarantee you he'd take it. He'd snap the fucking hand off you. Uh, <laughs> we need to figure out if there's direct communication via the Caviar website. If so, we'll we'll, we'll reach out and start a conversation. Uh, you see, here's the thing: it, it, it's definitely pre-recorded because. We can't be the first person to have this 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 idea, making a making a, a mockery out of fucking out of Mr. Nigel, our good friend Nigel. He, he, he does more than enough to make a mockery of out, out of himself. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> like, you know, fucking hell. I don't know. No, but it does. It opens an interesting thought of though that we are or we have been saying that we want. I want naysayers. I want controversial guests. I want people that I've got to really yeah, debate with. But and here's, really here's use the my thing. Thought, here's the thing, though. They've nothing to say. They've nothing to say, and this is yeah. the problem. So they'll just go, "Oh no, I'm not coming on that." They let, they're, honestly, if you have, if you're a, pro- a prohibitionist, if you got something to say, come talk to us. Come fucking talk to us. There, lay the fucking ground down right now. I want to hear it. I want to fucking hear it. Even if you school me and put me in my place, which you fucking won't. But anyway. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly that. And that is a perfect way to end this podcast. <laughs> <All> right, <laughs> folks, I hope you've enjoyed our little um, wind down chat at the end of this. Again, George Charlton, fucking bravo to the man, honestly. Uh, got a lot of love for George and what he's doing. He barely touched on a couple of the projects he's involved with. His work is extensive and he is tireless. So please do check out georgechalton.com. Uh, you can check out his counselor services on Facebook as well. Yeah, I showed um, the two pages um, earlier, so 
Just Excellent. rewind and the video. For our audio listeners, there will be in the links available below. Thank you very much for joining us as always. Uh, please do check out the pat- uh, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash a super life and help us uh, keep the lights on and keep the show going for uh, the next weeks, months, years, decades to come. Hopefully one of these days we'll get a, we'll get our big break and we're quite happy to slog on from now until then. So in the meantime, please do check us out on social media. Give us a like, a follow and a share. Um, and yeah, it's been a pleasure as always, Maka. Uh, we'll see you next week, brother. Love you, lords. Peace, guys. <laughs>